Welcome back to Pencils Down. On today's special episode, our guest host Guido Barosio, Chief Technical Officer of Finalis, turns the tables and interviews me, Federico Berardello, for a wide-ranging conversation that provides a more personal look into my background and journey into entrepreneurship, as well as lessons I've learned along the way. I really enjoyed the opportunity to sit down with Guido for this conversation, and hope that you do too. So with that, let's get started. So you came out from one of the biggest law firms in the U.S., a highly specialized in M&A firm. And out of nowhere, you configure yourself as a CEO of a newborn company. Do you remember which was your first decision as a CEO? Thanks for the question. I think that my first decision was really when to quit because I knew I had this idea, right, that there was a huge opportunity for the digital transformation of the sector. I mean, that's the journey, Guido, that we've been on mm-hmm. since getting started. And I had this idea that there was a real need for digital transformation, but it really came down to that ultimate decision of, okay, am I going to take the leap of faith? And I have to say that's it's one of those things that's very scary when you're kind of looking out over the edge and you're thinking, okay, am I going to take the jump or not? Because I quit my job. And it's funny, Claire, my fiance was reminding me the other day, she said, it's crazy when you think about it, that you were quitting your job without another job waiting for you or another source of income waiting for you. But I just kind of believed that the parachute would open on the way down. And so, yeah, I think that really was the first decision because if I hadn't made that first decision, then a lot of the other things wouldn't have happened. And I'm grateful every day that I did. So you quit. That wasn't a Friday, let's assume. What happened on Monday? Well, I actually took a week and a half or two weeks off. And I remember sending my email, kind of announcing to the firm that I was leaving the firm, and which was going to be effective at, at I think, 5 p.m. that day. And I actually jumped in my car and drove down the California coast to Los Angeles. And I spent 10 days with a good friend of mine, somebody who you know, actually, Shovik Banerjee, uh, crashing in his apartment and decompressing because I knew that I wanted to do this, but I knew that there was a unique opportunity to take a few days and just reset the batteries for this new life. And so I was working, I was kind of working out of coffee shops, starting to put my ideas together, but it wasn't full throttle. I gave myself some time. You created a sort of buffer between both moves, right? Exactly. It was a buffer. I knew that it was kind of a huge step and I was getting used to the idea of myself as an entrepreneur. And it just felt right to me that I should give myself that time. And it was actually, I don't talk about this much, but it was actually that trip where I connected with Claire. Oh, no. Um, and in LA. Yeah. And if I hadn't actually gone to LA after quitting my job, I'm not sure that we would have ever met. So Fed, can you describe the main difference between working for a huge corporation, reward established firm, uh, working on a startup from day zero? Yeah, I think large firms are very good at getting its various employees focused on delivering in a way that's aligned with their area of specialization and really executing on that. And that enables a large firm as it scales to ensure that it's operating efficiently. I think the biggest difference is that unlike 
a large firm where you have the opportunity to specialize in certain tasks. I mean, for example, when I was at Kirkland and Ellis, I knew, generally speaking, that I needed to become an expert on drafting and negotiating 40 different types of documents. And that was effectively my day-to-day job, was really mastering that, developing a mastery over those documents and those negotiations. Switch gears to entrepreneurship, and I find that I'm always in a beginner mode because I have to become proficient in hundreds of different areas. And the challenge, what makes it a challenging job is that you have to kind of balance and get to a minimum level of proficiency on many different areas and tackle all of them throughout the course of a day, which is pretty much the polar opposite of what my prior job experience was. Yeah. And non job with non activities versus a whole universe of unknown activities, right? Exactly. When I was a lawyer, they used to joke that being a lawyer was like being in a pie eating contest and the only reward was more pie because if you finished a deal, they would just give you another deal to do. In this case, you feel like there's always more work to be done and more to be learned. You never really reach a level of high proficiency because by the time that you do, the challenges that are facing the company have changed. And you need to become proficient in a whole new set of areas. I guess that's why it's so rare to find the case of a CEO that manages to evolve with the company over the long term. For every example of a Bill Gates, there's thousands of examples of CEOs that weren't able to evolve with the company simply because the new set of challenges that confronted the company weren't necessarily aligned with the abilities of the CEO. And that's something that I always kind of keep in the back of my mind as I think ultimately the measure of a quality CEO is in recognizing those limitations. And when does that person deliver uh, unique value versus does the set of challenges facing the company indicate that maybe that person isn't necessarily the right person for the job? I hear you. So let's go back to the coffee shop. You're sitting there in the middle of this buffer time and starting to think about the next steps. At a given point in time, you probably figure out that you were actually looking for a partner, for a co-founder. So how did that work out for you? Which have been the misses, the hits, lessons learned? So I would like you to share your perspective, just like some folks write books on this matter, eventually finding a partner, what that means to you. It's a great question. I mean, I think it probably means a different thing for different people. For me, what I was really looking for was I knew that this was going to be a long journey. The industry that we're working on disrupting and really innovating for is an industry that hasn't seen a whole lot of digitization over the last several decades. And so it was going to take a while to get to some of the indications of product market fit and traction that we're seeing today. And so what I was really looking for was somebody to be at my side. And I knew that a key weakness that I had as an attorney, as somebody that had kind of been in the deal world for a while, was that I had very limited technical skills. And the key way that we were going to deliver this transformation was through technology. And so I knew that I needed a great technical partner. The challenge was that in Silicon Valley, in San Francisco, the climate, even more so then than today, in kind of early to mid-2017, was white hot. And it was very difficult to get anybody's attention on the technology side. I remember having coffee chats and meetings. Probably one of the things I was working on in the coffee shop was just reaching out to people and setting up calls and meetings with people who had been proven CTOs to socialize what it was we were doing. 
And it was very difficult to get people's attention in the context of people being called up left and right to join Facebook for $400,000 a year or Amazon. There was just so many distractions that were confronting, I think, the potential co-founders that I might reach out to, which was really, for me, an incredibly frustrating experience. But it was also probably my first lesson in sales, which was anytime you're starting at an venture, you're thinking, okay, you need to socialize the idea. You need to win converts. You need to have people fall in love with the idea. And I was having a lot of trouble getting people to really fall in love with this notion of digitizing financial services in the investment banking space and in the private market deal space. And it really took me a few cycles. I had a couple of false starts early on with other people that I was starting to work with. But then the moment we really started going, they would lose interest and other job opportunities would materialize. That I decided that I needed to kind of go back to my roots. And my roots were the fact that my parents were born and raised in Argentina. That identity is core to how I grew up. And I knew through my father in particular, who's still an active VC in Argentina, that there's a ton of really good quality technology talent in Argentina, in Chile. And that sparked this idea of maybe being able to find that comrade in arms down in Argentina. And so that became the winning strategy, I think, because it ultimately led me to meet you, Guido, and for us to start working together. So you're encouraging our entrepreneurs to look for partners uh, abroad, basically. Is that correct? Well, I wouldn't just say abroad. I think that what I realized was that the geographical limitation was really just kind of a fiction in my head, that I didn't need to create a 100% based in San Francisco, kind of dyed in the wool Bay Area team in order for this business to be successful. And by the way, I think it's been very much validated by what we've seen over the last few months since COVID has set in, which has really forced a rethinking of distributed work, distributed teams, how you hire, how you retain, how you manage a productive team in a context where everybody's working from home. I think more and more, the geographical boundaries have really lost their significance and there's many ways that you can build a team. You don't need to do it in the same geographical area. From my perspective, I felt like I had kind of the built-in chip for being able to successfully work with a team from Latin America because that was such an important part of my upbringing, my values, my background. And it's very much proven to be the case. It makes sense. I'm going to connect these with another question. So many books out there and share their thoughts on how to iterate, how to move from zero to startup, from startup to a company, and uh, from a company to whatever comes next. How do you feel about your own experience? Uh, which book resonates with your thoughts on this aspect? There's a lot out there. I mean, obviously, there's Zero to One by Peter Thiel, which I think for those of you that haven't read it, definitely double clicks on that concept of how you're able to increment value or create value out of nothing and the crucial distinctions between the two. You know, for me, the book that was probably most inspiring as I was thinking about leaving the law firm to launch the business was, was The 4-Hour Workweek. And this was a book that really challenged the convention of the traditional 9-to-5 job and really made you realize that there was a whole host of tools 
out there and that there was a whole way of working that's very much been enabled by the internet that allows you to have an unprecedented degree of autonomy with respect to not just how you work, but how you live your life. And to me, that was a real paradigm shift because when I was a lawyer, I was very much in reactive mode. How my day went was very much dictated by the number of emails that I had in my inbox when I woke up at 5.30 in the morning, right? And that was going to dictate my day. And I was in reactive mode all day, every day. What I started to realize with books like The 4-Hour Workweek was this tremendous opportunity to kind of proactively seize control of your day and leverage the internet and all of these great new enabling technologies to give you that kind of freedom. And this notion of freedom being the new wealth, right? This notion that wealth is not measured by the amount of commas that you have in your bank account, but the amount of freedom that you have in your life. And I found that that was very much aligned with what I valued and what I was looking for in a career transition. Totally. And uh, on the Opal side, is there a book that nowadays you would definitely not have in your library? It's a really good question. I'm thinking about it. I mean, there's a lot of books and there's this whole school of thought around needing to be liked, right? I think about one of the famous books, How to Win Friends and Influence People. I think I'm learning over time that, yes, it's important to be liked, but it's also important to not shy away from a fight and not shy away from your values and what you hold to be important. And sometimes that means pissing a few people off throughout the course of a day or a week or a month. And that's okay, because I think ultimately that's leadership, right? You're going to have to fire people. You're going to have to change strategic direction. You're going to have to tell somebody that perhaps their performance is not aligned with what your expectations for their performance is. And that kind of shift in thinking has probably introduced some of the biggest challenges that I've faced over the last few years, simply because it's probably easier on me to be Mr. Nice Guy. Where it's been a challenge has been sometimes in confronting these issues head on when, for example, if there's a performance issue or or even if you feel like your market strategy isn't working and you need to change direction. That has forced some of the most difficult types of conversations that I face since getting into this. Right. So um, I want to go back to the Argentinian component. You're the son of two immigrants, as you said. And I know that you have got a clear passion for public policies. Can you share a five-minute analysis on what is going on in the world right now? I mean, I think we're living in a time that where a lot of the conventional wisdom about how post Cold War era was going to play out are, are being questioned. And what we're seeing is kind of a chaotic context where you have, on the one hand, an incredible degree of interconnectivity among people, interdependence, all of that driven not just by the internet, but by trade, by migration, kind of the universality of ideas, etc. But that now is starting to come into conflict with kind of a new form of tribalism, where people are finding their tribes cross-border aligned with ideas and value sets. And that tribalism is kind of very inward-looking and self-reinforcing. And that seems to be creating a really chaotic situation, whether 
you're talking about misinformation, whether you're talking about global or regional conflicts that are playing out in a variety of different ways. And I think that we're actually, from a global perspective, we're entering into a really dangerous and uncertain period. I often think about the fact that some of the most dangerous periods of world history have been times when you've had multipolarity, where you've had lots of different nations and groups that are forming temporary alliances with one another and reinforcing their own ideas. And that that's created very chaotic context in the past. And I kind of fear that we're starting to move in that direction again, but in a different way, in a way that's not just oriented around national boundaries, but also oriented around cross-border affinities. And I wish I could be optimistic, but I think in the midst of the coronavirus and a lot of the other challenges that we're facing, I definitely see that there's tremendous challenges that we're going to have to confront. And I'm not so convinced that national governments are really up for the challenge. I mean, it's been interesting to see with the coronavirus playing out, kind of the paucity of global leadership, where I'm not sure I could point to one president or prime minister who has been really kind of the global voice of reason on this crisis. Absolutely sure. So you're a hard worker. You're probably up there like four to 16 hours a day on your desk, thinking about worker leaders, their lives, and how to improve their time management make them win more deals and such. So how many hours do you feel a day should have, you've asked? It's funny, you know, my grandfather once said that life is like a wheel and you need to maintain all of the spokes of the wheel, not just one, right? And so if you were to apply that to this context, I think finalis is a very important part of that wheel, right? But it's not the only part of that wheel. I've realized over time that I could kill myself working every day, but that's not going to make me the most productive or the most effective. For example, I know that I need to exercise on a daily basis because if I don't, my mind is going to be foggy and I'm going to be annoyed that I didn't have the opportunity to exercise. I know that I need to spend time with my fiance on a daily basis and that we need to have an opportunity to connect and to talk about life, right? And things that are happening outside of work. And so, it's something I'm still figuring out. I don't pretend to have all the answers here, but I do know that, for example, I have a reminder on my calendar at 7.30 p.m. that it pops up and it it says wind down and it says in parentheses or face consequences. And that's a reminder of that there are real consequences. And by the way, those consequences will impact my productivity. So it's good to have some soft limits, right? I'm not saying hard limits because there's always exceptions and there's emergencies and there's times when you need to devote 20 straight hours working if the business demands it. But I think as a general rule, you should try to maintain some degree of balance. And I found that I'm most effective when I do. I got three more questions. And, and what is very important? I'd like to hear about Claire. There's this notion of behind every great man, there's a great woman. And we know that Claire has been instrumental in many aspects. And uh, I do remember her teaching us lots of finance for non-CFOs in a very short amount of time. And she's been great at that. But truly, what's behind that fantastic woman? (laughs) Well, first of all, I think I'm, I'm an incredibly lucky guy because she's someone who, first of all, there's unconditional love and patience, which I probably need my fair share of in the relationship. But she's also somebody who holds me accountable. 
to myself, to the person and the CEO that I want to be. And where does that come from? It's really hard to say. I mean, she comes from a great family that kind of imbued her with those sets of values, right? I think it's just very much a part of her DNA. And it's just who she is. It's just naturally who she is. And I just feel incredibly fortunate. She isn't easy on me, but I wouldn't give that up for anything because she really keeps me on my toes. She keeps me honest with others and with myself. And she's always helping me to raise the bar. So I'm very, very fortunate to her for that. That's great. Thank you very much for sharing that. I know that the family has grown up lately. Now there's a dog called Finley. What about <laughs> Finley? I mean, it was a pretty crazy thing in the first or second week of COVID to say, you know, life isn't chaotic enough. Let's get a couple month old puppy. But that's basically what we did. And small puppy. Right? And he was very small and he got pretty big. So Finley is a golden doodle and he's incredibly cute and has a great disposition and loves to cuddle. And more recently, I'm getting him into running with me in the morning. So the efficiency side of me says that's a great way to kill two birds with one stone because I'm spending time bonding with the dog, but we're also exercising together. And that was always my goal, you know, if we were going to get a dog to be able to do that. And now he's just been a joy, a joy to have as our newest little member of our family. Fed, do you actually play soccer coming from Argentina? Uh, yes, I did. And I can't say that I do because I'm not sure that I've kicked the soccer ball in a number of years, but I kind of turned into a crazy person during the World Cup. You probably remember, Guido, from a couple of years ago that I get kind of obsessive on the topic when the World Cup rolls around. I think for those of us that are fans of Argentina, that means being patient and always being a believer that the opportunity will come around the corner, although it's been very frustrating to see Argentina's last couple of World Cups, the one game versus Germany, where I really think it could have gone either way. And then, of course, the last World Cup was kind of a disaster for Argentina. So you can see I've avoided the question as to whether I really play. I'm not sure that I could really do much with a soccer ball today. But in the U.S. growing up, it's a really important recreational sport. It's kind of one of the ironies about soccer in the U.S., which is that pretty much everybody plays when they're a kid. But on the professional basis, it's really not a very well-developed sport. But yeah, I would say today I mostly watch. I don't play. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. No, thank you, Guido. I really, I really enjoyed the opportunity to connect and look forward to continuing the conversation. And I guess that the next one is on me, right? Yes, absolutely. I look forward to turning the tables. All right, take care. Bye. Bye. That's it for today. Special thanks to Guido Barosio for taking the time to interview me. You can rate and review Pencils Down on Apple Podcasts. Got a question for us? Send us an email at pencilsdown at finalis.com. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to Pencils Down on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded.